Usually, we would teach in series, so we would do four or five weeks on such a, you know, some sort of culturally relevant subject, something that we think will, will help people. But in August, because there's so many people coming and going on holidays, we tend to do little talks that just standalone one-offs that help us to, to just get through the month. But also, it's kind of interesting for me because you know, as a follower of Jesus, you know, I have my own sort of time with God when I'm not just trying to prepare talks, and God speaks to me, and, and, and things kind of occur to me, and as I spend time studying his word, you know, there are ideas and concepts that sort of uh, strike me in those moments, and those kind of sit with me, and this talk I'm about to, to share with you has actually been hanging around for about four years, believe it or not. It is a, a very little talk. Not so much in length, it goes on for four hours, so no, I'm teasing. <laughs> but there's not much substance to it. No. <laughs> it sounds better and better, doesn't it? <laughs> but this is just something that struck me in my normal reading, and I, I, it's something I've chewed on, and, and I think there's, I just really pray that this morning it, it kind of finds its mark, because there's something in this that intrigues me in, in this these couple of readings I'm going to share with you this morning. But before I do that, just to try and help get us all on the same page so that we can at least have a decent stab of understanding what I'm going to be talking about, I want to just begin by talking about worldview, the way we perceive the world. Now, many of you will know this, but the way we perceive the world in the West is very different to the way the rest of the world sees it the two-thirds world, if you like. And this is what we call worldview. It's quite profound and it influences the way that we do life. Now, in order to understand the scriptures, the Bible, we have to understand that the basic worldview is very different to the Western worldview. And this, for me, was a breakthrough thought. This isn't the main thrust of what I want to say this morning, but it might just help you to relate to some things I'm going to say in a minute. And basically, this is this, that, that in most of the world, not this world that we live in, but in most of the world, they see the world as subject to two kingdoms, if you like. The world of light and the world of darkness. The world of good and the world of evil. There's good spirits, there's bad spirits. There's good karma, there's bad karma. It, it, it's a two-paradigm, a two-pillar paradigm, if you like. And that's the way the world is perceived. Now, we have to understand that when we look at the scriptures, we're looking at a book that was written out of that paradigm. In the West, we have a somewhat different view. It's been molded and evolved because of our love of Greek philosophy. You didn't know that, but well, maybe you did, but many of you, your whole education has been through the lens of Greek philosophy. And in particular, in what was known as the Enlightenment in the 18th century, when, when we really formulated the, the, the quest for scientific proof the quest for understanding. There was a time when we believed that simply everything in time would be explained by physics and chemistry and now genetics or whatever. It's a two paradigm, it's a, three, it's a, a different world. And in fact, our worldview, when it comes to the bigger questions, is a three pillar paradigm. What do I mean by that? Well, first off, first off, it's that we all know that there are good people out there. You know, we're, uh, who are they? Well, let's, uh, let's think. Uh, Mother Teresa, she's, she's dead now, but she was good, wasn't she? Anybody disagree with that? Anybody agree with that? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. She was good, wasn't she? That's right. Then you've got 
Maybe Gandhi, maybe Gandhi was good. Maybe Martin Luther King, I don't know. Who would you put on your list? Maybe uh, Victoria Beckham. Yay! Yay! There is this world of, is it celebrity? I don't know. But it's the world of the great and the good. And they're up there on a pedestal. And, and, and they, are, they, they live in that world of light. They live in that world of greatness. They live in that world of, of, of clarity and focus. Then, of course, there's the other end, the other spectrum. And, and of course, great, great, uh, you know, great names that occur to one out of the 20th century would be Adolf Hitler and uh, Mussolini and you know, a whole host of serial killers. They're really the dark side. And that's not too difficult to see, yeah. Those, you know, those people are truly evil. You know, people who just, you think, how on earth could they have done that? So we've got the great and the good, and we've got the, the black and, uh, 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 and the evil and the dark. We know that side. But most of us, I said this was a three-pillar paradigm, we live in the middle. We live in the world of gray. Where is it good? Is it bad? Is it, is it right? Is it wrong? It's all relative. It's, you know, whatever, you know, whatever's good for you. It's all right as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. I'm leaving my wife, but I still love my kids. You know, we justify all these kind of things. We have language for this. We, we, we live life in this way. That's how we, in the West, that's how we do life. And it's very important to understand that the Bible does not do life that way. The Bible's view is shared with many historic religions, many historic philosophies, even ancient Greek philosophy, interestingly enough, some aspects and strains of it. We are in the minority. This worldview is only a couple of centuries old, three centuries old. it's It's the new boy on the block. It's tried and it's untested, but we live We live in this world. So I needed to say that to you so that when I read one or two of these these stories, you don't just raise your eyebrows and think, what? I just don't, (laughs) you know? Which is what I would have done 30 odd years ago. But you approach it with a little bit more, with a question mark. Hmm, interesting. I'd like to think about that. Because unless you do that, this talk will just go, so this little talk is called Who Are You? We've just dedicated these babies and, and we've, we've not given them their names, their parents gave them their names, but we've, we've recognized them, we've honored them, we've spoken out their names, we've given thanks to God for them, we, all of those kind of things. And this morning, all of us here, maybe for a very brief time before we forget the names, we, we know these children, these children are known. And, and this, this talk, Who Are You?, is about knowing and being known. I picked up that thread, for some of you will have noticed and remember it, in my prayer at the end of the worship time. Who are you? I went up to uh, Silverstone Racetrack last week, last weekend, with a few friends from church, and one or two from outside of church, and we went to this Silverstone Classic race, and there's quite a few of us there. And one of the guys, uh, didn't know one of the other guys and said, Who, you know, hi, my name is so-and-so, and what, what's your name? Great, and what do you do? And this, this dear friend of mine, who's a friend of mine, but doesn't come to this church, he just launched in a kind of a 20-minute monologue of not just what he did, but what he'd done and how he did it 
and how great it was and how we met Mick Jagger once and all this kind of thing. And anyway, I didn't know anything about this, but later on we're sat in the grandstand watching these classic cars racing by and my fr other friend leant over me and said, I asked that fella who he was and what he did and he told me. <laughs> <laughs> so this knowing kind of, and haven't we all been in those kind of situations where you've been at a barbecue, you've been at a party, you've been at a wedding or somebody, and you're, you're, you're standing in a line or something, and you turn to a, a say, hi, how, how are you, and, 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 this, and you, you ask the wrong question. Yeah. Ever been in that situation? Yeah. And they tell you, oh my gosh, you know, I just want to turn to someone and say, kill me, you know. <laughs> Beam me up, Scotty, you know, do something. Rescue me, save me. Well, you know, some of us, all of us maybe to some degree, we're not sure who we are. So we define ourselves by what we do. For, for men, it's typically the job we do. Yeah, I'm Chris and I'm an engineer. But for many women, it's the children, isn't it? The children. You may be a career woman, you may be a high flyer in the city, and then for all the right reasons, you choose to, you know, it's your time in life to, to start your family, and, and you and your partner start the family, and then suddenly it's an amazing switcheroo. I've seen this in my daughters. They've been very, very focused on their careers. They've become great mothers, and, it's, uh, and, and they've, their, their identity is then tied up in the children. The danger, of course, is it becomes, you start living vicariously through them. You lose your own identity. You don't know who you are anymore because you're totally defined by the children. This question of who are you is an interesting one. And I want to say this right at the front end. God knows who you are. Not the way you want to present yourself, like my friend speaking to my other friend at Silverstone, but he knows who you really are. And that person, for many of us, scares, I mean, the real me scares me, you know? And if you're honest, the real you probably, if not scares, causes you to despair. I sometimes despair of myself. I think, you know, even before I became a Christian, there were times when I drove home after a day's work, I was in business, I was very successful, and I'd done a good job, I'd done a good deal, and I'd drive home, and I didn't feel good about myself, and I would just shrug it off, and I usually would shrug it off, and I would say, well, I've got a, I've got a family, I've got a family to think of, but it, even by my own set of values, such as they were in those days, and we all live by a set of values, whether we recognize them or not. Even by my own set of values, I disappointed myself. But what I want you to hear up front is this, that God knows you. And he is kindly disposed towards you. Wow. Now that's the kind of friend I stumbled across 30 years ago. It changed my life. I found it hard to believe, but once I got it, it changed my life. And I found it to be true. I found him to be gracious, forgiving, and alive. So this talk is as much about that as it is about anything. Who are you? Sometimes that who are you can be turned into, have another edge to it, that question, who are you? It can be, who are you? I remember, Years and years ago, Fliss and myself, when we were in business, we took some business associates out to dinner, and we, were, we had our business in North Yorkshire. 
And uh, there was a new kind of uh, club restaurant that had opened up in Ilkley. And uh, so we decided to go across there. And I, I had bought myself a very expensive Italian leather jacket. And it was kind of like a bomber jacket. It was like a, a motorbike jacket. It was kind of in the style of Harley Davidson, but it was Italian leather. It was, you know, it was, had all the, the look, but it was actually beautiful, a beautiful jacket. So have I told you this story, by the way? I'm getting deja vu, this is scary. I'm like, okay. <laughs> anyway. So we arrive at this restaurant, and it is tipping down with rain. So I, I did what many of you would do. I said to my, my wife and my guests, I said, listen, I'll pull up here, a double yellow line, a bit difficult. You bundle out, I'll go and park the car somewhere, and I'll come and find you. So that's what they all did. They all ran out, shot into this lovely new bar restaurant. I find somewhere to park, come to the door, to the, uh, this place, and there's two or three you know, doormen, bouncers there. And I don't think anything of it. Anyway, I go to go through and they say, off. I said, a big pun. <laughs> Get off. No greasers in this place. Now, some of you understand that language. You don't, greasers was the 70s expression for motorbike boys. And I thought they were joking. I said, no, 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 uh, no I'm not a greaser. Uh, my wife and you know, business associates, get off down the cow and calf with you. They honestly said that, get off down to the cow and calf. It's seared on my memory even now. <laughs> and I said, but, but, but my wife, my wife, my, get off down the, the pub down the road. No grease is in here. And I'm standing in the pouring rain, looking more and more like a drowned rat. And in the end, I had to send somebody in to find my wife, to find this friend, and we had to go somewhere else. It was absolutely humiliating. <laughs> now, maybe you've had an experience like that. Rich, one of our staff here, and I went up to the House of the Parliament about three or four weeks ago, and uh, we were privileged to be invited to an early morning breakfast. There were about 400 guests, and it was called the National Prayer Breakfast. It was a huge deal. It was a great honor to be invited. I've, all our regular people know that, because I keep going on about it. Yep, I know, I'll probably go on about it until the day I die. My grandkids already know about it, you know, and they're only four months. You know. and, uh, Rich and I were invited up there, and uh, we had to be there at 7 o'clock in the morning for security check-in. And, and you know, as we walked up to the policemen that were on the security gate, I thought back to Ilkley. <laughs> and uh, as we were going down the line, the policeman was saying, who are you? And it wasn't, you know, who are you, or who are you? It was, who are you? <laughs> It was like, oh my goodness. And I just knew that Rich was going to get in and I was going to be turned away. <laughs> I was going to be told to go down the transport calf down the road. I just knew it was going to happen to me, you know. Anyway, I got there. And amazingly enough, my name was on the list. <laughs> so suddenly I'm through and I'm walking through the Houses of Parliament and I'm saying hi to this Lord and that Lord and shaking hands with this MP and all that kind of stuff. And, it was a very posh do, but my name was on the list. The who are you, when answered by Chris, Chris Lane, was, yeah, you're on the guest list. Phew. Now we get into the two readings. That's all been by way of introduction. <laughs> and there's far more meat in that than is about to come, so brace yourself. <laughs> to pad it out somehow. I've got to keep you here, otherwise, you know, whatever we're going to do. 
Okay, Acts chapter 19, it's gonna come up, we're gonna look at two little passages of scripture, and, and actually this is, um, I hope, gonna be helpful for those of you who are followers of Jesus, and, and intriguing for those of you who are not. Can I just say, by the way, if you're feeling a little bit uncomfortable about the way I keep differentiating, it's because we are so used to visitors. This isn't the way we, I'm not doing anything differently, we are always expectant. There are people who, like Fliss and myself 30 odd years ago, are just beginning a journey. And that's how the church has grown. We don't expect us all to be expert. We're all on a journey, we're all learning. So I'm hoping that there's gonna be something for all of us, a bit of a tall order this morning. But this is the passage. Just to put this in context, context, this is out of a book within the book that is the Bible called Acts. It's really the history of the early church. The first 30 odd years or so of how the church started after Jesus Christ, the Son of God who was crucified and rose into heaven, how, how the church got on after Jesus had gone. And uh, the, the incredible thing is, as you read about the church in the early days, is, is just that extraordinary sense of the presence of God. That's what's something we keep banging on about here. And how God's presence and power, even, begins to infuse the church. So it's more than just a social club with happy, clappy singing. It, it, there's a life in it the life of God in it. And so it's quite an exciting story in the Acts of the Apostles, uh, reading about the early church. And here we're gonna hear about a guy called Paul, and and Paul was one of the great heroes. He emerged as one of the great heroes of the early church. He was a Jewish rabbi who was converted to Christianity and had had a brain like a bacon slicer. He was a sharp cookie. You know, he, he, he would debate uh, in, in the Greek debating halls. They loved debating. He would debate with the rabbis. He had an intellect which was formidable. But he was also a very humble man and a real practical guy. So he would travel around starting churches, encouraging local communities to become Christians. And, and here we find him in Ephesus. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but, but if you go to Ephesus today, you know, Turkey, you can do day trips to Ephesus, and the whole place is infused with, with Christian memorabilia now. And it, it, it was a major city, 50,000 people in its day. That's not big by today's standards, but in, 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 in that period of time, 50,000 was major metropolis. And such was the impact and the effect of Christianity there that there there was a huge church there. Well, this is right at the beginning. And Paul's teaching and he's he's arguing and debating and and also God is showing up. And there's kind of healings and miracles and stuff like that. That's why you needed that little introduction about worldview. Miracles, yes. Healings, yes. Demons are cast out of people. Not the sort of thing you see waiting for the you know, 7.15 at St. Albans City Station, necessarily. But this worldview is unfazed by this kind of language. Let's pick up the story, Acts 19. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were, that were given to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. 
And some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those they were demon, that were demon-possessed. And they would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. They were kind of earning some pin money, you know? They would get a little fee for this, casting out demons. It usually invoked an interminable, absolutely interminable repetition of the name of Yahweh over and over. That was the traditional way. It took hours. This was almost instant. No wonder it was appealing to them. They could earn more pin money. So that's what's happening here. Verse 14, seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. And he gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. And when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was highly honored, held in high honor. Who are you? Basically, it's not rocket science this. This demon answered these exorcists back. So wait a minute. Jesus I know. Yeah, Paul I know. <laughs> Who the heck are you? You see, they were living on the back of somebody else's reputation. They were, they, were, they were getting a free ride. We see this in life, don't we? I remember a friend of mine, a friend of my wife's and mine, when we first got married, same sort of area as the, as the Ilkley thing. Um, his father, uh, actually, if I mention the name of the company, you would, most of you would recognize the company. His father owned this company, and they had just gone public on the stock exchange, and they were wealthy. I mean, wealthy with a capital W. Got it? That wealthy. So wealthy, they didn't know what to do with the money. And the son got his way in every matter. Got his way with girls, pretty despicable. Got his way with bad behavior in nice restaurants. Got his, he was not a very nice person, to be honest. And he was in our circle of friends and what have you. And he was riding on his father's, not so much reputation, but his father's wealth because his father always bailed him out. And so what these sons of Sceva are trying to do, they're trying to ride on somebody else's reputation. They're trying to sort of, you know, win influence and, and make a few buck on the side on the name of Jesus and, and Paul, just to be on the safe side. And what is interesting to me, what I have found intriguing and what is, I've chewed on all these years is, is, is really the, the demon's response. Because you see, I've always thought that, that praying for the sick, and, and that's something that we do here, we will offer prayer for the sick at the end of the service when you get, most of you go for coffee. It's something we've done for years and years and years. And we've seen healings and miracles. It's quite extraordinary. Curiously enough, for Fliss and myself coming from outside the church into the church, it was one of the beefs, if we had, you know, we had a few beefs, but one of the beefs we had about the church. Because we thought, well, if God is God, why don't he do something? And then we came into, 
the church and we floundered around for a while and then we found ourselves in this new stream, this new thing that God seems to be doing where people do get healed. Not everyone, we'd love it was everyone, but many do. And so one of the things I found intriguing about this as I've tried to study this thing is, is I've realized that actually success in ministries like healing and deliverance and stuff like that is not so much about technique even though we teach something here called the five-step healing model. We have a high value on training. We have a whole training center that runs three times a year. We value training very, very highly. And yet what's clear from this statement, it's not about training. It's about who you know and who you're known by. You see, in the spirit world, this other world, there were heroes. There were people to... To, to avoid, Paul was one of them. <laughs> but when these sons of Sceva turned up, these people who were just kind of along for the ride, then the demons said, I'm not, you think I'm gonna leave this guy just because you say so? Who the heck are you? And so that, that really has informed the way, not just the way we train people, but the way we say our identity in Christ, and one of my staff members here, Linda Hall and her husband, teach whole courses on this, a course called Restore. You know, rediscovering our identity in Christ is of crucial importance, isn't this right, Linda? Yeah. It's, it's a ground for, for all of this stuff. So for those of you who are followers of Jesus, you know, it's not just about, when we ask you to do something or, or set a challenge to it, it's not just about, oh, but I need more training, or, or no, I'm not ready yet. Or, yeah, it's, look, those are good questions. But the most crucial and important thing is that not just that you know Christ, but that you're known by Christ. You're on the guest list. Now, the, actually, this is a, an image, the guest list, that is picked up time and again in scriptures. And one of the things that dis is disconcerting about it is that there are people who are on it and people who aren't on it. Now just to illustrate this further, onto my next little reading here is Luke chapter 10, so uh, I think Matt's gonna put that up on the screen, I'm just gonna read that. Now this is Jesus himself, and again, it's kind of an insight into the way this two-pillar paradigm works and the importance of relationship, of being on the guest list in the family, if you like. And in this one, what's happened here is that, that Jesus Christ, it's the middle of his ministry, he was, he, 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 he was a, a teaching, miracle-working, healing rabbi for about three years before he was crucified. And in the middle, there's this sort of heyday period where everything's going hunky-dory. Some are saying that, he, that they should make him king, others are saying that he is the Messiah, and for, for the Jews, that, that was an absolutely critical question. Who is the Messiah? When is the Messiah coming? Now, Jesus is the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, if you come from a Jewish background. And we can spend time talking about that. He is the Jewish Messiah. And people, because of the favor and the success that Jesus was having at this time. We're beginning to ask that question. One morning, Jesus wakes up, they have breakfast, a few grilled fish on the beach or something, and the gang gather around, his close followers, and sort of say, well, what are you gonna do today, Jesus? And he scares the living daylights out of them because he says, well, you 12, you're my closest friends, I'm gonna, sit, I'm gonna pray today, or I'm gonna do whatever I'm gonna do. 
have a sauna or something. Uh, you guys, you go off and you pray for the sick and all the rest of it. Well, it really freaked them out because it was one thing to see Jesus doing that, but you know, for them to do it. Anyway, long story short, they go, they come back, and they've got amazing stories. They can't believe it. Their eyes are like saucers. They're like excited, wriggly kids. It was incredible. We went out there, and even the demons submitted to us in your name. You see, they were on the guest list. They were known in heaven. Now, Jesus doesn't stop there. He's on a roll. He then takes... 72 hangers-on, not the inner circle, the in-crowd. He takes the 72 hangers-on and sends them out to do the same thing. Go and preach the gospel. Go to every town I'm going to say. Say the kingdom of God is near. Cast out demons. Heal the sick. If you're welcomed, eat with them. Party. If they don't, just move on. Don't sweat it. Just go to where you will be received. And this is what we hear, we read this little story here, Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 17, of their return. Let's see if I can find it, yeah. The 72 returned with joy. Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And he replied, oh, and I always kind of, when I read this, I hear Jesus being almost dismissive. Like, don't worry about that. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I saw him when he was cast down. He's a fading power. Don't get fixed on that. Instead, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing evil will harm you. Now, if a guy throws a punch at you, are you going to get a black eye? Yes. But nothing evil, lasting, dark, demonic will harm you. And he goes on to say, however, do not rejoice don't get all excited about the fact that spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. There it is again. And so the question of myself is, and the question to both believers and unbelievers alike is this, are you known in heaven? Are you known in heaven? You see, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands here. There are people here who know about God. They come every week. There are people here who know about God and they don't come every week. They have a personal thing going on, private faith. But are you known in heaven, you see? That's the difference. When I was up at this Silverstone Classic thing, I'm walking along and I see this this fellow having his photograph taken with somebody else, and I sort of, you know, as you do, you kind of step round, and I look back at the people being photographed, and it's Sterling Moss. Well, about 10% of you went, and the rest went, huh? Well, now, Sterling Moss, for those of you who are motor fan, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's 80, he still races now, but he started his motor racing career in 1948. He drove for Ferrari in the 50s, and uh, you know, just, he's, a, he's an absolute icon of motoring history. I instantly recognized him, instantly. I wanted to stride up and say, bang him on the back and say, hi Sterling, how are you mate? And I'm sort of taking half a step and I realize he doesn't know me. He would just think I was an escapee from the local, you know, <laughs> Asylum. 
And I guess that's the thing that really bugs many celebrities. The whole world and his dog knows about them, knows everything about them, because they all read these magazines about their intimate lives. And, and, and often when they're out in public, flocks of people run up and slap them on the back and want to have their photographs taken because they know them. But the reality is, the reality is, of course, the celebrity themselves, the object of the fascination, doesn't know this other person at all. You see, that's the deal here. You might know who Queen Elizabeth II is. If, if you were sort of driving down the street and you saw a little old lady with a Range Rover and a flat tire, you might pull over and offer to change the flat tire and then suddenly you realize there's a flag on the bonnet and she's the queen. You might help her out, but does she know you? No, but we all know who the queen is, but she doesn't know you. You see, it's not enough to know about someone. It's not enough to know about God. It's not enough to read a Bible even, or show up at church. The real deal is, do you have real relationship with this individual? And that's the extraordinary thing, because I told you a little bit of my story. You know, Fliss and I had you know, a, an encounter with God after the birth of our first child. And, and did we not know about God before? Had we never been to a wedding? Had we been to a funeral? Had we, when I was part of the Scouts, had to go to a color parade? Of course. I, I, you know, I wasn't raised a Christian, I wasn't raised religious, but I did these things. We all darkened the church door occasionally and listened to someone like me wittering on interminably. But what Fliss and I discovered was actually this God is alive. He wants connection. He wants genuine and real connection. And so for those of you who are followers of Jesus, I want to say this to you. This makes me a little uncomfortable in myself. You know, are you known in heaven? Well, am I going to heaven? Uh, you know, yes, I am. What's my reputation like in heaven? When Paul's name was mentioned, the demons in Ephesus went, oh, flipping heck, we don't like Paul very much. <laughs> Have you, you know, do the demons, do the demons in this two-pillar paradigm shudder when they hear your name? Or do they say, oh, Chris Lane, always oh, a big old softy, pay no attention to him. I'm afraid that for many Christians that's the deal. We don't scare anyone. Why? Because we just kind of muddle through life. We're just sort of indistinguishable from anyone else. There's no passion or fire, no self-sacrifice. Our biggest goal is to, is, is to just get our kids through school and there's nothing wrong in that and, and retire to the golf course and cheap two-for-one dinner offers. Oh my gosh, that sounds terrible. Flipping heck, if you're going to do it at all, do it all. Don't namby-pamby around. You know, I'm just berating the, the, the Christians here, so if you're not a Christian, you can put your fingers in the air if you like. But 
Oh, for come on, guys, come on. If we're going to do it at all, let's do it all. You know, the resources of heaven are at our disposal. What's needed is a little courage here. We need to step in and start mixing it up, setting captives free, feeding the poor. We're all trying to begin to do these things. Are you known in heaven? Do you have a reputation? If you were arrested, was it, would there be enough evidence to convict you with, as a Christian? And for those of you who are looking in from the outside, kind of like, oh, flip, gosh, when's it over? I want to say to you, God bless you. I was there once. I, honestly, I mean, I wasn't even in neutral. You're here. I would not darken a church's door. I actually had a problem with pastors, people like me. There was a reason for that. I felt hostility and antagonism towards them. I wasn't neutral. If there was time I could tell you, there was a lot of baggage I had to get through to get to this, and I'm not there yet. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, speaking to you out of a very ancient two-pillar paradigm that most of the world is still running on, I have to say to you, there is a welcome for you In the halls of heaven, God is kindly disposed towards you. How long are you going to say thanks but no thanks? I would encourage you not to get all religious on me. I'm not asking you to do that. I would encourage you to pray perhaps for the very first time in your life. You can even say if there really is a God out there. You can begin it, you can preface it like that. But I would encourage you to pray and to say, God in heaven, if you're really there, can we get to know you? If you want to be really bold and if you have some sense of unworthiness, because very often I found that people actually, they, they, they just feel unworthy. God's got better things to do than bother with me. If that's the case, pray, God forgive me. That's what he does. He's in the forgiving business. Remember, that's why Jesus died on the cross. I mentioned it earlier on so that those of us who are aware of our sin can be forgiven. That's when the slate was wiped clear. And I would encourage you to begin a journey of discovery. You know, you owe it to yourself. 